0: Hey everyone, first up, we at the Familiar Strange want to acknowledge and celebrate the First Nations peoples of whose lands we are recording this podcast. I'm there recording on the land of the Kabigabi people.
1: I am recording from the Ngunnawal and Ngambri country and I acknowledge the traditional custodians on the lands which I work, study, and record for TFS.
2: And I'm recording from the unceded territory of the Squamish Nation in Canada.
0: Let's go.
3: Hello and welcome to The Familiar Strange, brought to you with support from the Australian Anthropological Society, the Australian National Universities College of Asia and the Pacific, and the College of Arts and Social Sciences, produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association and coming to you from still our bedrooms. I am your familiar stranger today, Lachlan, together with my familiar strangers, Kathy. Hello. Claire. Hello. And Sean. Hi there. Before we dive into today's discussion, did you know that we have a Facebook chats group? Join us on the Familiar Strange Chats on Facebook and provide some valuable insight on today's episode.
0: And um, So what's everyone been thinking about this?
3: Well, I, I study at the University of California, Santa Cruz, which is one of the 10 campuses of the University of California. Uh, and on November 14 this year, uh, we graduate student workers, like what we call academic student workers. So people who work as teaching assistants, readers and tutors, they've all gone on strike graduate student researchers, academic researchers, and postdocs. We've all gone on strike across the 10 campuses. So this is three different union groups, UA, UAW 2865, the United Auto Workers, UAW 2865, UAW 5810, and SRU, which stands for Student Researchers United, which is a, a, a group of graduate student researchers and, and academic researchers that was founded uh, in November last year. Um, so this is about 48,000 people that went on strike uh, November 14. Uh, it began with a teaching picket or people just stopping their research entirely. Now, because we're at the end of the quarter or at the end of the semester, you know, we're withholding grades uh, of students that don't need to receive their grades so that the campuses can't receive the money from the federal and state governments. Uh, so this is something we've done before at the University of California, Santa Cruz. We know that this is a critical pressure point uh, for the university, uh, and this is the way that we're going to win. But it's stressful and it's tiring and we're coming into the winter break where everyone's going away for for holidays and stuff. So I think it's a good moment for us to be talking about graduate student organizing, academic labor, the financialization of higher education and academic exploitation,
2: just more generally. Nice like topics, Sean, I think you have some opinions here. Yeah, certainly. Um, Throughout my Ph.D. at the University of Brighton, uh, we ended up going on strike uh, as a university as well as uh, across um, the UK through the UCU, the Union of College uh, and University, uh, which deals with anybody who uh, teaches. So teaching assistants, um, lecturers, uh, professors are all involved in the, the UCU. Um, and we went on to strike a surprising I think, three or four different job action times during my four years while I was while I was there. And recently, they've also just begun a campaign uh, across the UK uh, UCU rising that looks to target the anti-casualization, that looks to target the increased, the increased undercutting of lecturers' salaries uh, with the, obviously, the increase in provost, pro-vice chancellor, and uh, university president wages. Um, so it's really being undercut with this sort of financialization model. And we've had a huge pushback uh, and a UK-wide campaign against these practices.
3: Kathy Claire, I... is this something that resonates in the Australian context like this is something that casualization has been it is a problem in the United States, as far as I'm aware, through uh, the increasing adjunctification of teaching that uh, now, you know, a majority of classes are going to be taught by people that don't have permanent contracts, um, but also a lot of classes are going to be taught by people in PhD programs. And so these are typically the average of my school is 7.8 years to finish a, a PhD. Uh, And so this is a long term commitment that a university makes to a graduate student. And this is one of the reasons I think that we can kind of engage in different types of labour action. But as I understand it, Australia has a similar problem with casualization as what Sean's describing here. Is that right?
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, I think in the past few decades, both labour and liberal governments here in Australia just have made huge strides in cutting university funding and slashing research grants, pretty much in their campaign against public tertiary education. Not to mention how public universities during the pandemic were just explicitly cut off from receiving the job keeper subsidy, while private institutions, on the other hand, did receive the, the support. So thousands of academics across Australia in public universities just lost their jobs because of this. And what the government essentially was telling the universities was just to make the ends meet. You just have to turn to private source of income, which is mostly heavily reliant on international students. And of course, that plummeted um, during the pandemic, which resulted in really poor financial performance from those universities and one cost cutting measures from the public universities here in Australia is casualization of the academic staff which i think is the majority of i believe i read the numbers somewhere like 70 to 80% of academic staff members here in Australia in public universities are casual workers and they just face terrible working conditions like there is no job security or entitlements, and they just find themselves working piece rates in just this really sustainable cycle of seasonal work and then there is just no support for them to engage in research activities. So yeah, long story short, they are overworked and underpaid and we are definitely seeing the same systematic form of exploitation.
0: Yeah, definitely. And just to add to that, it's been really interesting seeing the dynamics on campus as well between those who are casual staff members and those who are tenured and tenured track um, professors. And I think that that's been really interesting and really quite sad to see that there's not necessarily always a support. I mean, there's definitely some amazing professors who go out there and they'll kind of really put their foot forward and and shout for, for those who are being exploited. But there is this quite, I would say, deafening silence coming from those who are in positions of of power and privilege. And even when it comes to our whole union movement, it's something that I've been quite sad about, especially coming from the UK where I was my family of proud unionists. And my grandfather was in the firefighters union and didn't work for months and months and months. And then coming here and seeing maybe six people on picket lines um very few people striking and i mean at the university of sydney most recently just in november the union just stopped the strikes they just decided okay well we're not getting anywhere we'll cancel the strikes and we'll meet again in march and it's just these sorts of things so i look at um what's happening in california oh that's brilliant like to see it's so many people getting behind it and like the actual power of unions which I am quite sad I feel like we've lost because this whole neoliberalization of the workforce in Australia um, especially at universities but it's really kind of dug deep into the mindset and the culture of the way a lot of people work as well.
3: I've got I've got two responses here and we could put a pin in one and get back to it um, like I, I think you raised like two really interesting points to me which is like Tenure track professors and their lack of support despite their immense job security Uh, and then this kind of managerial unionism that is not quite as militant as the rank and file members uh, of the unions Mm -hmm. and so maybe maybe tackling tenure track. You know, uh, professors and their lack of commitment. This is something that really irritates me because I think there's we have Well, I definitely had an imagination that once you get tenure, then you you don't have to worry about anything. It's very, very hard for you to get fired, uh, including if you do like, you know, uniquely horrendous things like people like professors have done horrible things at University of California, Santa Cruz, and they've kept their jobs for for long after, even if they're not teaching. Right and that will stay on the payroll. These are like really secure positions, but they simply do not turn out. Assistant professors will turn out, adjunct lecturers will turn out, people that are like really kind of feel this sense of precarity. But once people get the security, they don't seem to, to, to kind of turn out to the picket. They they definitely don't withdraw the, or withhold their labor. And there's something that kind of happens. To me, it's an imagine, it's something that happens to people's imagination as they get tenure after they having spent, especially in anthropology and disciplines like this, where you work by yourself so much there's a way that you stop thinking of yourself as a worker and you start thinking of yourself as an intellectual. So at UC Santa Cruz, when we did the wildcat strike in 2019, 2020, most of our support was coming from assistant uh, assistant professors. So people that were on the tenure track, but they were not quite yet tenured or people that were lecturers and adjunct faculty members who are part of a, of a different union, uh, associate professors and professors, their support was typically writing letters on our behalf, which is a form of support, but it's kind of You know the the intellectual up in the tower comes down and offers their opinion to the masses and then withdraws. Like they were never ending their classes, right? They were never like a few of them would hold classes down at the picket, and there were super support. There were some super supportive uh, tenured people. Like I don't want to like dismiss everybody, but there's something that happens to somebody's imagination that they stop imagining themselves as as a worker, And, and this helps them to kind of understand or reframe material political problems as intellectual problems, and they start to parallel the university who turn poverty into a technical problem, rather than a problem of how they're distributing resources. Claire, this is something you and I have talked about. Uh, What do you think here? Is this similar in Australia?
1: Yeah, I'm actually hearing two sides of the story for those who have job security as in tenure tracks or who have already gained tenureship. Like in my line of work as the advocacy and policy advisor in the postgraduate student union here in Australia, we have seen university management um, who used to be academics, but as soon as they step into their role of, of management, it feels as if they stop caring.
2: Jumping off of that, I'd say that some of my experience of being at the University of Brighton is perhaps similar to what you're talking about, Lachlan, with um, the multiple different campuses uh, of University of California. Now, the University of Brighton is a much smaller institution, Um The amalgamation of several technical colleges uh, into a university Uh, and what this has done is it's created, I think, a fractured sense. Across the university um, where we don't just have a singular branch for the university, but rather we have campus branches and I see the strength of the branch that are closer to the larger cities brighton and just outside Falmer, getting a lot of support, both from students uh, from tenured faculty members from precarious workers like PhD students and postdocs who are doing some of the teaching, showing up to the picket lines, um, and really advancing the cause, you know, showing up in solidarity working hours to contract, being on the picket lines, educating uh, the public as well as those others uh, who are walking by the picket lines. But at my campus, for whatever reason, there just seemed to be a lack of engagement in, one, in a few of the satellite campuses. So we would have four to six people on the picket line, whereas, you know, we're, we're one seventh of the entire university faculty and and student contingency we one of the seven schools and to see not a seventh of professors and PhD students and other precarious workers show up to the picket line to advance for their own cause for equality and equity and pay um, for anti-casualization for to push against the erosion of, of pensions just seems counter in, counterintuitive and counterproductive to these senior professors livelihoods in a way right it's it's also their pensions uh it's also their working uh, and living conditions you know which they have to share with those who are in assistant professor and 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 student and and postdoc um um, setting so it was it was really difficult from a a very engaged and, and activist stance to try and fight for better social justice Um, and to have that political struggle on the street in front of the universities and not get that support from you know your senior colleagues and just like Lachlan and Claire were saying like some senior academics tenure track did come out and they did a wonderful job in supporting the few that were out there but it was just it was it was so few it felt like just kind of what's the point and and In fact, the branch that I was part of ended up folding the year um, that I finished my my PhD and got absorbed uh, by another campus. Now, also, the campus is uh, also closing. So it it, it makes sense. But in the moment, um, we didn't know about the campus closing and the branches had to close because there wasn't enough support um, on the ground from people to step up to be secretary, to be, you know, lead of that of that branch. Um, so yeah, it's it's also a, like it's just an erosion of, or a seemingly uh, like a lack of of support. People just don't want to put in the extra time and effort and energy into it, right? Especially if you're considering yourself to become, you know, in that academic and intellectual mindset. Your intellectual labor should be thinking deeply, writing grants, um, doing research, uh, writing articles, not necessarily putting your you know hard won hours into standing on a on a picket line which I think is completely wrong, (laughs) but that's sort of the mindset that seems to be happening. Mm.
0: Yeah, it's almost like these outside forces are totally working, right? This whole, let's try and move towards this neoliberal model, let's try and move towards businesses, let's talk about the individual and exactly what, you know, individuals are doing rather than the power of collective organizing or communities and things like that. And I feel like, that's been really interesting to see because I thought the university would be the last place to be hit by that. I thought mm-hmm. that we, um, you know, the things that we learn, it's all counterintuitive to kind of what we we know and what we spend our lives researching. And I do find it really interesting that, I mean, well, as anthropologists, a lot of us, um, or definitely me, I study social movements and I'll go all over the world working with people and refugees and things like that. But when it comes to um, my own my own context and fighting for myself it's it's really interesting that I don't necessarily always put myself on the line for that um and I do wonder if it's just because we're buying into it it's like oh yeah but you know I'm not publishing enough therefore of course I'm not worth as much um and it is really interesting I mean obviously once I become a full-time PhD student I'm sure I will be very organized and very organized, and probably like um many of the others be one of the five people <laughs> on the 50th line. But it did also get me thinking to something that I've been reading about a lot within the context of refugee social movements and the communities in like, the diaspora. And it's almost like once you hit a pinnacle of comfort and when you're personally no longer affected, there's less and less want or it seems necessity to put your, your physical body on the line so it's really interesting to kind of hear that maybe people were writing letters and they could be writing things, opinion pieces in the paper, which is all great for their own individual recognition. It makes them feel probably a little bit better, but they're not putting their physical body on the line in order to kind of raise awareness. And I find that whole concept really quite interesting because it's something that seems to happen a lot within these social movement spaces. It's like, Okay, well, now I've got what I need and my family is comfortable. I'm no longer going to put my body on the line.
3: Yeah, like I see that a little bit. And I also think there's a way that institutions think themselves through us, right? And so the increasing neoliberalization and neoliberal restructuring of universities is making people think in a more individualistic way that's not necessarily you know brainwashing it's a structural thing like people have less time to see each other right like I remember when I was a tutor at the University of Melbourne we there was like uh, whatever like 150 tutors and there was one office and it had eight chairs right like you just couldn't hang out with a lot of people unintentionally and you couldn't bump into folks and realize that your personal problem was actually a structural problem so like there's a way that you start to adopt some of those things and maybe you know tenured faculty thinking that publishing an article about this is going to be more important than canceling lectures right like the, the the executive vice chancellor of ucsc during the wildcat strike when 81 of us got fired and 41 of us got fired permanently i got uh, fired permanently she was a labor scholar like this was what she wrote about and then she became evc and then just fired us all right and so, like, and during, like, we were fired in the name of business continuity because at the University of California, rent is meant to be free. That was written in the the original kind of, like, uh, whatever you call it, the original doctrine, the original, like, constitution of the University of California said rent should be free. They stopped doing that. Um, and now uh, business continuity is the central thing. He, well, they call it educational continuity. They call it the educational mission, but it's business continuity because it's all CEOs and stuff that are making the decisions here. And so in their, like, emergency preparation planning section of the university There's like what to do in a fire what to do in an earthquake what to do in a flood what to do in a chemical leak what to do in a labor strike like we're equivalent to a natural disaster to a university because we're a disruption to business continuity and so like lack the lack of commitment we might have is like a, it's a structural problem born of these the ways in which we're kind of divided from one another and this is a problem that we're encountering in this strike in this moment is that our pickets are kind of waning but there's a strong tendency to mistake the picket for the strike. Like pickets are super important for, you know, rallying new people, right. To, to being public and to being seen. And also for just like getting excited with people and keeping your morale up being around a lot of people does that being around very few people. There's nothing worse for a strike than going out to a picket and there's five people and you just like kicking rocks for a bit and then you go home. Right. But like a good picket really does help for this, but The strike like is not the picket like us withholding teaching labor or withholding grades or whatever. That's the real stuff. And I think like sometimes right now, University of California, like the union has been encouraging us to go to Sacramento and go and speak with, you know, elected officials and go, you know, occupy buildings and stuff. And they're framing it as direct action. But it's to me, it's like extremely indirect action because it mistakes where the locus of power is. It says power is over here in the Capitol building and not with the 48,000 people withholding their labor. And so this is like another manifestation of this individualized understanding and also just like the way that politics has become, you know, something you do every four years when you vote rather than something you do materially with a group of people when you say this is bad and it should be different, you know?
1: Yeah, um, that reminds me of a Chinese saying, a very old one that goes like, um, so where you are sitting determines where your head is going. And that explains this whole structural design of the system. It's just a lot easier to miss problems in the system if you are sitting in a position where you can just deliberately not look.
3: I like that phrase. And like, yeah, and university administrations are deliberately tilting our heads certain directions, right? Oh, if you haven't published an article within this year, um, you, your employment's going in the can like all of these things that keep our eyes tilted certain directions so that we can't see the the broader vista of what's happening to us.
2: It's not directly involved with universities, but it is education as a whole. And something that's been I've been following and looking at in Canada um, is the teachers union in Ontario. Uh, So the largest province in the city of Toronto, the largest city in Canada. They just recently had a massive strike by basically all um, all public education teachers uh, in elementary and in high school um, walked off the job. And not as a labor dispute, because the government invoked a very odd political mechanism in the Constitution called the non-withstanding clause, which allows them to overwrite our fundamental charter of rights, human rights and freedoms in Canada. And it's this mm. bizarre holdover from about 40 years ago uh, when it was implemented and put into the Constitution to give the provinces a little bit more power over the federal government. Mm. Um, so the federal government couldn't dictate what the small provinces, or I guess like states, if you want to compare it to like a the American context, but they walked off the job saying this isn't a strike, um, because that was mandated as illegal. They said, this is this is a political movement. This is about the politics. This is about you undercutting our fundamental charter of human rights and freedoms. We're not striking for our wages, but we're strike or we're walking off the job as a political protest, which is very interesting. Uh, Because it had the direct consequence of improving their labor relations, of forcing the government to go back a step and actually sit down at the negotiating table and increase their pensions, increase uh, their wages for cost of living, and to not roll back a bunch of promises that that the government had, had made to not undercut education. So what was a very much a labor struggle reframed because they had to be. As a political struggle, had more resonance, I think, with not only the the teachers but also with with the public, and it got a lot more press because it was a human rights uh, and charter of rights and freedoms issue. And so maybe that is a potential way of framing these strikes that we're having as less of a labor relations because it's it's more and more so becoming. A political issue and uh, honestly uh, maybe not a human rights and freedoms issue in countries around the world but ultimately you know we do have these these rights baked into our constitutions to have good health care or have a place to live and have enough food to have enough food to eat uh, a roof over your heads and this is what is directly getting affected by all of these cost reductions and the neoliberalization of the institution. Because it comes down to money. And the cheaper our labor is, the more the university can sort of make of, as a business. But then we suffer to make ends meet.
0: I would add to that that maybe not all countries have that enshrined in their constitution. Australia does not have a Human Rights Act and has no Bill of Rights protecting us at all. <laughs> and they consistently take everything away from us, um, which is really interesting. And it's that's in the hands of states and territories, so in the ATT. example where ANU is we do have a human rights act it's it's weak (laughs) um but there's nothing actually enshrined in our constitution and I think that that really limits our ability to create um these political movements in a way because they're like they can just stop us from going (laughs) forward (laughs) we don't have the right to protest like they will send police and tear gas into the streets and all of these sorts of things and it is quite brutal and I don't think people realise it until rights they think they have are being taken away and there is absolutely no due diligence to necessarily prosecute them or go go any further with action and so yeah that's really interesting that's happening in Canada just from the perspective of one of my current key Preface asks is like, we really want a human rights act in Australia because we're really seeing how easy it is um, for them to just kind of keep tapping away at, at little things. And I think COVID really brought that to the forefront when our borders were closed. There was no freedom of movement. 42% of Australians have at least one parent overseas and they weren't able to see their families and things like that. So I do, yeah, maybe. I don't know what you think, Claire, or um, I guess both of you have been to Australia as well, is maybe our lack of being politically active, both in the sense of literal politics, but then also within union movements, if that's all interconnected, because there is this, I guess, there's no underlying assumption um, that we have a constitution that protects us.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I'm thinking about international students in this sense. Um, because for our organization, the majority of the members at the anU that we represent are international students, and they would face severe consequences and visa implications if they go to protests and demonstrations. so most of them will just choose to not participate in any sort of movements, be they on campus or climate justice march um so it is almost set in the design of the system to discourage people from participating politically.
3: Yeah, this was a thing we had at UCSC during the 2019-2020 strike, which was a wildcat strike, so it was illegal, um, and which is why the university could fire us. Now we're on a an unfair labour practice strike, so we're legally protected to go on strike. And so the international student participation is less like ambivalent because during the wildcat strike when we got told that we were going to get fired it was kind of like what country you're going to get kicked back to and so going back to australia for me it's fine but my friend you know who's turkish uh and you know her previous professors are now in jail uh, it doesn't make it's not worth the risk right and so she stopped striking and supported in different ways and i could keep striking you know because australia is like for me at least it had proven itself to be a reasonably easy country to live in but these things yeah like they really kind of fracture our imagination or, or like they, they fracture the, uh, the possibilities we have and so i like what you're saying sean about different ways of imagining what labor could be because i think this is a really critical thing and this is a not to kind of get into the details of what's happening exactly in this strike but we're represented by a bargaining team that has a 10-9 majority toward uh you know conservative concessionary offers to the university with the hope that the university administration then gives us something back that's never happened in the history of the world that you give a person a powerful thing and they give you something nice in return right um but this is what they're doing and right now they're they're saying the offer they're giving to the university which is it cut all the disability protections that were in it like it was an access needs article so people with disabilities didn't need to show med- uh, show uh, you know evidence or documentation uh, in order to receive accommodations that's changed to reasonable accommodations so they have to show all of this documentation it cut dependent health care uh, it cut uh, child care and then it cut the wages we what we're fighting for is to have our wages indexed to the cost of living like indexed to the median rent cut all of that and you know and then cut the you know the the base uh, wage that we were fighting for. And they said, oh, this is a really good offer, because this is in the middle of this is the median of comparable schools, what you see, what you'll be getting at UC is a, in between what you get at Yale and Cornell. And this 48,000 people, this is the largest academic labor strike in US history, we didn't organize 48,000 people to shoot for the median of what exists, mm-hmm. right? Like we organized this amount of people to burn down, financialize higher education and, and build something new, right? And so this problem of imagination, this problem of like, you know, practicality and realism, like this is a thing it's, it's a real material concern when it comes to, you know, visa status and so on, but it's also something that kind of gets baked into us like we get taught that we deserve less when we really deserve abundance right and it's not like these universities are actually running out of money, like the, the UC president makes $1.5 million a year lives in a $6 million mansion, um, they have $5 billion in an endowment and then $152 billion in investments like they're not running out of money, none of these universities are right and. Um, All right, that's not really any comment or a question. That's just me going on a rant. But does anyone have something to say?
0: (laughs) (laughs) And where do we sign?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Just um, along this line of like, you know, international students afraid of losing their visa or being sent back to where they came from. It just reminds me of one of my cousins who undertook his PhD studies in America in a different institution than UC. Um, But for him, it took him Eight years to eventually complete his degree because his mm. supervisor would ju- just would not let him go, just to keep his cheap labor. Mm. Um, and in such a power dynamic where your supervisor could single handedly destroy your career or academic prospects and may even impede on your visa, it's just impossible for an international students to stand up against exploitation. Mm. And there just needs to be more support in place to protect their rights, because they do Mm. deserve that.
3: No, this is why we formed the Student Researchers United Union. Um, I think it might be the first researcher union in the United States. And then the 5810, the postdoc, um, who were on strike until last night, that's the first postdoc strike that's happened in the United States. And so the reason we formed SRU was to have a grievance process. Like that was a critical thing, get more money and everything like that. But to get people out of these uh, really toxic relationships where they were kind of dependent upon the advisor of a lab and so they would stay in these horrible situations, um, this is one of the critical things. And so that's what the postdocs just agreed to. And this is a really positive thing. Uh, I have a lot of other feelings about them accepting this contract at this time. But I I think, yeah, getting people out of these horrible arrangements is is a really critical thing for higher education. And this makes me think of how this stuff is just, affecting scholarship you know and and affecting teaching like I know I remember there was a person at the University of Melbourne when I was working at the University of Melbourne we got paid to mark every 2,000 word essay in a half an hour which is nowhere near sufficient right and nobody ever does that but when you care about your students you just like do the free labor and we eventually got paid back uh, like a bunch of that that unpaid labor but so many ways uh, you know our teaching gets affected students get worse educations and we can't do interesting research because we have to do research that maybe has a more immediate payoff that's going to lend itself to an article quicker It makes me think of like the the replication crisis in psychology where a whole bunch of like fundamental psychological theories, once they were finally tested again, and, you know, were found to be kind of bunk, but it's because it's not very sexy to go and just like test something out again, right? But like, these are some, if we want to understand this well, we kind of need that long term stuff, right? And so yeah, I'm wondering what you all think about how this, you know, corporate restructuring of higher education is shaping, you know, teaching and scholarship.
2: Maybe that's a really interesting tangent, actually, um, to like, the, the replicability of studies, particularly within anthropology, everything has to be new, everything has to be mm. sexy, everything has to be demonstrated, particularly to funders, as well as you know, universities, that you're going beyond the state of the art, right. Mm-hmm. Um, and unless you are, you know, unique, you're on the cutting edge you're not gonna get funding, you're not gonna get support, you're not gonna get the media attention, you're not gonna get the university attention, you're not gonna get you know the higher education rankings and the, and meet those KPIs that your, your boss and your universities are looking for for those promotional tracks. More and more so, at least what I can see is we're, we're very moving away from reproducing the same type of study. So going into similar communities or the same community uh, having a researcher, you know, do say it's if you looked at uh, masculinities within football, right? And you look at a group of, of male athletes and maybe you had a male scholar doing this. Well, wouldn't it be interesting to have a female scholar come in and do that work on masculinity or maybe even femininity, you know, and female masculinities within this same space and this sort of same context? Right, and that is technically like a reproduction of the study in a way. But it's like, well, you're just going back and looking at the same people over again. Like, why? Like, we have the we have the ethnography, we have the cultural record of these people. We've frozen it in time and taken the snapshot. Move on, find something new and interesting. <laughs> no, 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 <laughs> no,
0: I think that's really like such a good point, and it's so interesting, isn't it? And it's kind of who who actually determines what is interesting and what should be studied, and I think that we all need to like definitely in the university system need to really critically think about that and who is the the people who are assigning the grants who are determining what matters to our research and a lot of the time it's not even necessarily other academics and it's you know very similar demographics and so i think that we do have that challenge within anthropology as well because i think we're constantly critiquing our own discipline and we're always wondering actually what benefit am I giving to the community that I am working with um, rather than just the, the grant funder on the other side or potentially the politicians who've decided this is the now really important way of where we're going. And we did have the Australian Research Council quite recently. And we, there were some very political things happening there where they were basically determining who got grants and for what reason. Mm. And there has been pushback against it, but the fact that that even was able to happen is something mm. that we should all be shocked at, and we should all be up in arms at. And mm. so I am deeply concerned about what knowledge means and who determines, I think, what is valuable. Mm. And I do have an interesting one to add on to your the replicability as well. One of thanks to the pandemic, um, there's been a, a lot more localization, I think, of interviews and researchers. Um, that's been happening, and there's this great story where one of my friends was interviewing basically people who used to take Australian exchange students at an undergraduate level, and they used to live with Indonesian families. And so, as an Australian, she used to ask them how it went. It took a long time to get terribly much truth. Um, it was oh, it's lovely. It's a great experience. We all enjoyed it. Um, and then the local Indonesian researchers would ask, and they'd be like, "Oh my goodness, those entitled, annoying white <laughs> people coming in here and um, expecting us to do everything for them." And I do feel like there is so much value in having multiple perspectives in our study.
3: This is something that anthropology, that like I think I don't I don't know, but I feel like there's ways that this discipline is handling restructuring better. Like I partly because of the proximity that we have with the the people we work, uh, Mm -hmm. the people that we work with. Like, they're gonna tell you when you're wrong, right? And you have to be like, oh, shit, okay, like, I better do, like, I better change that. Whereas the person just sending out 50,000 surveys has been like, oh, you know, I can just, I'll just 49,999 surveys, I don't care. You know, like, they they just, like, don't have to worry about it in the same way. Whereas, you know, a a discipline whose methodology requires this form of relationality, I think we think about this a little bit better, like, but I am, like, I still see, like, uh, when I read some anthropological work, like, I think about how, but, but perhaps particularly because anthropology is kind of not considered as real. A, a discipline as you know stem uh, stem things what do you call them disciplines uh, it's not considered a real discipline like that we've developed this kind of like fortress style of writing in which it's just like constantly defending itself from attacks mm. and, and i just wish we had a, just a space to have a more gentle form of writing where we weren't super defensive or like worried about somebody having a hot take you know like that There wasn't such a risk involved in getting something published that we spend, you know, two thirds of a paper defending ourselves from the worst imagination, you know, the worst critique, the most bad faith critique we can imagine. Right. Like, I I, I feel like that's something that's happening because I read some stuff and, you know, I've been doing anthropology for, I don't know, like 10 years and it's like impenetrable to me. Like, I don't know what's happening there. And I think it's a function of this. Like, we're seeing like our lack of security manifest itself in like the most secure arguments you can imagine because like this article has to get out because it's like for some people, maybe not literally life or death, but definitely, you know, hunger or lack of hunger, right?
2: And, and so much of that, I think, comes down to, yeah, to so circle it back to strikes and labor and precarity, so much of that comes down to these KPIs, you know, the outcomes of your research um, that universities are required to get, you know, required to make every year. Um, they're looking at your research to advance their own worldwide university rankings right
1: like thinking about like you know in terms of the precarity of disciplines I did literature for my undergrad and then um, did anthropology now and then I've often got people coming to me and ask oh wow you must be like it's such a luxury to study these disciplines like you must come from a really wealthy family or things like that and then like I figured most of my classmates, say in anthropology or in literature, did not end up doing a job related, like even slightly to the courses that they undertook. And then like for a discipline to continue its lifeline, it ha- it has to like for anthropology just has to keep attracting more students. But then, is it even ethical for a discipline like this, where they cannot even guarantee job security in in the same discipline for the students, to keep doing that? Is my question. Yeah, that's play so devil's bad. advocate. <laughs> Otherwise,
2: they, they all just go into business, you know, and then yeah. and then <laughs> things just get worse. <laughs> not to you know not to not to put any of my you know business colleagues under the bus,
3: but. But can you imagine that world in which, like, you would just like you're like, I really no, I care can... about 12th century pottery. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I'm gonna work as a barista. I'm gonna work as a mechanic. Like, I'm gonna do anything. But like, I really would love to to go and learn about this because, uh, you know, I think they're really pretty. And to have space to ma- have space in somebody's like, uh, you know, career and life that they could go and do that. And it wouldn't. There's no necessary connection between what you study and what you work. You know, like I would love to have that world in which, like, you know, I like I would like to be an anthropology teacher because I I like teaching a lot and I like anthropology and like so this is something that works for me. But like, I don't know, I could also imagine myself being a mailman and having a PhD and just like wandering around thinking about some of the stuff that I research for the rest of my life. That sounds like a nice life too. But like now that I've I have like this sunk cost, I feel like oh. People are going to think I'm kind of silly if I I went and did a PhD and then I don't end up doing something fancy with it. You know what I mean? Um, And so I wish we could kind of disarticulate, we could disconnect these things.
1: Yeah, that would be the dream world, wouldn't it? (laughs) (laughs) If I had a windfall, I would do 50 PhDs.
3: Mm. So, what do you hope for, for like, because this is going to be the last episode of the season? So, it seems like a good moment for us to reflect upon the year that was and the year that it will be. Like, what do we hope for in our discipline? Uh, you know, in the year of twenty twenty
2: three. Stepping off from the recent American Anthropological Association's annual meeting and the title of that, which was "Unsettling Landscapes," I really hope that the discipline and us as scholars and anthropologists continue to unsettle. The landscapes of higher education and within our discipline to reshape, to rethink, and to try and change the structural inequalities that we see, and work to create further solidarities um, with with our colleagues and with our interlocutors to try and make a meaningful change to work towards you know having impact to have a more of an applied take within the discipline and within our scholarly lives, our our intellectual pursuits.
0: And I think what attracted me to anthropology in the first place, because my undergraduate also wasn't in anthropology, was the fact that there is this constant critique of the world around us. There's this constant breaking down of systems and, and our understandings about the world. And I just hope that we continue to do that. But like what Sean said, I hope that we continue to break the structures, but then act on it. So whilst we have this knowledge, I think it would be great to work with the people, yeah, and develop our solidarity. Keep decolonizing and doing all of those things and yeah, just try and actually make the world a better place.
1: My hope for the discipline, especially in the in light of the recent case against Harvard, was for the discipline of anthropology to turn the gaze inward. I really dismantle its own power structure within the discipline and analyze, I guess, the systems of knowledge production, not despite oppressions and power struggles, but how knowledge is produced because of the very structure that exists and yeah, to take action as well.
3: This seems like a nice and hopeful note to end on. I want to thank Claire. Thank you. Kathy. Thank you. And Sean. Thanks very much. Today's episode was produced by all of us at The Familiar Strange. Our executive producer is the wonderful Matthew Fung. Subscribe to The Familiar Strange podcast. You can find us on iTunes and all the other familiar places, including Spotify. And if you'd like to support us, please check out our Patreon page, patreon.com slash thefamiliarstrange. Not The Strange Familiars, which is another fun podcast, just not ours. You can find the show notes, including a list of all the books and papers mentioned today, plus our blog about anthropology's role in the world at thefamiliarstrange.com. If you want to contribute to the blog or have anything to say to me or the other host of this program, email us at submissions at tweet at TFSTweets, or look us up on Facebook and Instagram.
1: We have some more exciting collaborations coming next season, so keep an ear out for when we return. In the meantime, let's keep in touch. Feel free to submit something to the blog. We are always looking for new content and are keen to hear new voices. The submission guidelines are on our website at www.thefamiliarstrange.com forward slash write for us.
3: Music by Pete Dabro. Special thanks to Nick Farrelly, Will Grant, Martin Pierce, and Maud Rowe. Thanks for listening, and until next time, keep talking strange.